On the way back from a conference I went to last week, I rolled through my old stomping grounds. It's Norwalk, the hood. And part of me was excited about that because I'm like, oh, I might see old people that I used to go, you know, know and I used to see all the time. I, got, I went to some of the same spots we used to hang out in. And largely, things are kind of the same. With a few changes here and there, but mostly the same. There was one part of my trip that was the same that I... <laughs> I mean, I don't know how else to tell you. Like, there's, there's areas of Norwalk you just don't go to. And even as an adult, twice the age I was when I was in high school, when I kind of used to hang out there, there are still places that I'm like, I'm just not going to go there because I don't want to get shot. And I didn't. <laughs> I didn't go there. I drove by and I tried to look around and see if there was anything happening. But one of those places that you don't go to is the one ways. They're called the one ways because you only drive one way. So they call them one ways. Because one, okay. So the people there, though, they were, I mean, the, the one ways were a little more affordable in, in Norwalk. And one of the cool things about it is uh, because it was so affordable, a lot of people stayed there. And, and, and it came to be known somewhat of a reputation for having a lot of gang activity. So if, for instance, you were walking home from a late night, hanging out, you don't walk through the one ways, even if that was a shorter route. You take the long way around because you don't want to roll up in that hood without the proper attire or without the proper affiliation, without the proper protection. So as I drove by, I was reminded about how when I was there, things used to be pretty dangerous. I don't know if it's the same anymore. Things might have changed quite a bit. But really, your hood determined whether or not you survived if you're going to go through those areas. If you had the right colors or the right people, you were fine. But if you didn't, you might get robbed. In fact, did I tell you guys a story about the time I was robbed? I was mugged. It wasn't in the one ways. It was actually next to the Kmart. But... <laughs> But I did get mugged. It's another story for another time. Your hood determines your survival. Tonight, we're going to talk about your hood. Okay, uh, the, the title is What Hood You From? All right? There's two hoods you could be part of. You could be part of the Melchizedekan priesthood or you could be part of the Levitical priesthood. Only one of those priesthoods is going to mean your survival as a Christian. And we're going to look at a, a large chapter tonight. So I hope you have your Bibles ready. We're going to have to cover a lot of territory between now and uh, June 1st. We have a lot of stuff to cover in Hebrews, and I fully intend that we get through all of them. Tonight, when we look at chapter 7, we're going to look at both hoods, the Melchizedekian priesthood, Melchizedekian, and the Levitical priesthood. And again, as I said before, one of them guarantees your survival and your safety, and the other one uh, doesn't. The other one will almost guarantee that you fail in your walk. And in fact, if you remember, the book of Hebrews is all about how you can endure in your Christian faith. How to stay Christian and not lose your hope. How to cling to him. So we're talking about assurance tonight. And we're also going to talk about your, uh, your endurance and your assurance together. And how the Melchizedekan priesthood guarantees your endurance and your assurance, if you understand it. Tonight we're going to have a little more theology than what we, what we normally would do. But I think it's necessary for you to get the sense of what's happening here. So let's first understand where we're getting ourselves into here. Chapter 7, we're going to cover the whole thing tonight. Don't worry, I promise you, we're not going I'm not, to, I'm not even going to say anything. I'm just going to take it back and stop, because I know myself. I'm just going to say, we're going to go through chapter 7. What you need to first understand uh, is, let's, let's first talk about the Levitical priesthood. Uh, you, if you're reading the DBR with us, you just read through the whole book of Leviticus, and you're understanding, in part, how God arranged the priesthood that Israel was to be under. So you now know there's an old covenant, and there's a new covenant. Under the old covenant, which 
covers the first 39 books of your Bible, God dealt with Israel in a certain manner. And that manner was largely managed by the Levitical priesthood. Now, in case you're not familiar, the Levitical... This is a, you can't really quite see that, can you? Okay, you'll have to take my word on it for what this graphic is showing here. Uh, the Levitical priesthood comes from the tribe of Levi. In fact, sometimes we'll say the Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood. We use them synonymously many times. Levi is the great ancestor of the tribe of Levi. It's all his kids. And from the tribe of Levi, God said, I'm going to choose this group, this family, to be uh, the priests. Not all Levites were priests, but all priests were Levites. So God chose from among the Levites those who would be the pastors over Israel. So God first started with Aaron, which is why we call it the Aaronic priesthood. Aaron was the brother of... Very good. Aaron was the brother of Moses. And so God, in kindness to Moses, said, here, I'll let you have your brother Aaron to be your mouthpiece when you talk to the Pharaoh of Egypt. And so God eventually ordained Aaron to be the first high priest over Israel. And then, of course, you have all of his lineage who would be the high priest for the next several uh, thousand years. All right. So Levi, Levitical priesthood, comes from from the name Levi, which is from the tribe of Levi. Levi was where you would pull the priest from. And this is, they represented all that God did under the old covenant. Okay, that's the Levitical priesthood. That's where we need to start. And now you also need to understand that there is another priesthood that's being introduced here tonight. We saw this in chapter five when we were looking at it together. The author of Hebrews, the preacher, references the, uh, this mysterious figure named Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek is introduced to us in the first verse of chapter seven. Let's take a quick look together. Chapter seven, book of Hebrews. For this Melchizedek, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Abraham paid tithes. He is the first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay, so first what you need to understand is that Melchizedek starts off as a mysterious figure that Abraham meets after destroying these pagan kings. He saves his nephew Lot. He comes across this figure named Melchizedek. Now here's what you need to understand. This whole thing that we just read can be a bit confusing, but the word, or the name rather, Melchizedek is literally Malki Tzedek. Malki Tzedek. Malki means king of. Tzedek means righteousness. So when the Hebrew preacher says, look, his name really means king of righteousness, that's what it literally translates to mean. So Melchizedek is Malki Tzedek, and it stands for king of righteousness. Now, Melchizedek came from the town called Shalem, which uh, the author goes out of his way to tell you, the Hebrew author, he says, look, he came from the town called Shalem, which would later be Yerushalem, Jerusalem. He says he came from the town of Shalem, and that translated into our language means peace. 
So Melchizedek is the king of righteousness, and he's also the king of peace. And the author of Hebrews is saying, look, isn't that amazing that this mysterious figure, who we know nothing about really, comes on the scene. His name means king of righteousness, king of peace. And oh, doesn't that really sound a lot like Jesus? That's his point here. He wants you to understand that this king of peace, king of righteousness, resembles, verse 3, the son of God. And it gets even more mysterious because unlike the tribe of Levi who had to trace their lineage through their fathers in order to be priests, Melchizedek just shows up. And here's something even more strange. Melchizedek is not part of the Abrahamic covenant. He just shows up. And yet the Bible endorses him as a true follower, a true worshiper of God. Who on earth is Melchizedek? And that's kind of his point here. He shows up having no father, no mother, doesn't have a lineage, is not traceable. He just shows up on the scene. Now, I don't have any idea who Melchizedek truly is, except for what the Bible tells us. Some people suggest that Melchizedek is actually the pre-incarnate Jesus. It's a Christophany sometimes we, we refer to that as. Other people suggest that this is actually an angelic messenger. There, it's not a human. It's an angelic messenger who is showing up to demonstrate his, uh, his kindness to Abraham and, to, and, and all that, and to be blessed by Abraham. Whoever he is, and I don't think that he's Jesus incarnate. I don't think he's an angel. I think he's a man. We just don't know a lot about him. Whoever he is, the one thing is clear. Abraham sees this Melchizedek, king of Salem, as someone superior to himself. Take a look at verse 4. It says here, See how great this man was to Abraham the patriarch. He gave to him a tenth of the spoils. Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, uh, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So to translate that, it says here essentially, look, this Melchizedek isn't a Levite, and yet God takes Abraham and says, Abraham essentially tithe to this man doesn't verbalize that, but that's the sense that Abraham gets. And so Abraham gives a tenth of his wealth to Melchizedek, even though he's not, he's not one of the chosen race. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's not, an, he's not from the, the clan of Abraham. He gets that 10%. He blesses Abraham with the promises. Abraham was the one that God used to deploy the promises that, would, that we would all enjoy. Verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In other words, when Abraham ties to him, Abraham's acknowledging you're greater than I am. In the one case, ties are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. Uh, hold on, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives ties, paid ties through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Levi had not been materialized at the time that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And so he's saying Melchizedek happens before Levi. Melchizedek is acknowledged by Abraham to be greater than Abraham himself. And so because Abraham, one of Abraham's kids, his offspring, was Levi, it's essentially like Levi pays tithes and acknowledges the greater, uh, the greater priesthood of Melchizedek. That's his point. Continue on in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, this is you know, how God managed his covenant through their priesthood, through their ministry, 
<coughs> what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after Aaron? So if there was anything, if there was anything wrong with Levi, why would God make it clear that there was another priest, a priesthood to come? For verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. So he's saying, look, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah and there's nothing in the Bible that says someone from the tribe of Judah can ever serve as a priest. Now here's the problem that God makes for himself. God makes a promise in Psalm 110, which we're gonna read very soon. God makes a promise that there's going to be a coming king who will also function as a priest. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that Judah, the tribe of Judah, that's where the kings would come from. That's where King David would come from. And Levi is where the priests would come from. So how could you ever have cross-pollination? You can't, unless God does something outside of that structure that supersedes the law. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. He's making it clear. This is what I just said. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. He's talking about Jesus now. Who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, not on the basis of the fact that he's associated with the tribe of Levi, but he's, uh, he, he is a priest by the power of an indestructible life. What are you talking about, preacher? Now he's going to quote for you the, the prophecy out of Psalm 110. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him. Psalm, one, excuse me, Psalm 110, verse 4, I believe. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Pause and look at me for a second. I need to, I need to tie two pieces together. The priesthood of Melchizedek was prophesied to be something that would supersede the priesthood of Levi. The qualification to be part of the priesthood of Melchizedek was permanence or foreverness. You are a priest forever. There had to be some quality of person who would exist longer than 80 years that God gave him. So Psalm 110 points to a future priest who would also be a king who would be permanent. That's what verse 17 is getting at. Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. He's talking about the old covenant law. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And that better hope is, of course, Jesus. That hope that we have in Jesus is what allows us to draw near to God through his mediatorial work as the Melchizedekan priest. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. That is, Levitical priests weren't having, the, they, there was no oath associated with them. But there is an oath associated with the Melchizedekan priest. Verse 21, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Psalm 110 once more. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Man, that was a lot of groundwork. And I, I did not explain it exhaustively, but here's what you need to know. The author, the preacher of Hebrews, connects the Melchizedekan priesthood with your salvation to the degree that you cannot separate them. If you understand the Melchizedekan priesthood, you're going to serve better. You're going to be a greater enduring Christian. You're going to be a more steadfast disciple because you understand the great work that God did on your behalf through this guy's priesthood. 
I put it like this, point number one, let's know why Melchizedek matters to your salvation. We've laid the groundwork, and I want to point out to you two things that really help us solidify why this priesthood is necessary and why it contributes to our endurance and even our assurance of knowing that we're right with God. Okay, I, a couple years ago, I ran the 23andMe thing, the genetic discovery tool, and it told me that I'm Mexican. <laughs> Just kidding. It actually told me some pretty interesting things. You may not know this about me, but I am actually European. I didn't know that. I'm of European descent anyway, broadly European in some parts, but I am, uh, it says Sp Spanish and Portuguese. That's what Mexicans are. Yes, thank you very much for that. <laughs> I'm also like 0.4% Ashkenazi Jew. So I am one of God's chosen people. Just saying. No, don't clap. <laughs> one thing, I, 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 the, port, the report was a novelty. I really don't care. Like, it was just kind of fun. I'm like, oh, it's, it's on sale. Let's find out what my ancestry is. But when I got the report, there wasn't anything in particularly profound. I mean, I kind of understood. I, I'm brown. I know where I come from, more or less. It doesn't matter a whole lot. But then there was one part of my report that, that caused me to raise an eyebrow. The report said I have two genetic variants that can contribute to age-related macular degeneration. That means your eyes begin to deteriorate differently than the rest of the population. And that scared me because I like my eyes. I like seeing. I want to be able to read. I want to be able to enjoy life around me. And I began to notice that. I don't know if this report made me all self-conscious and self-aware, but now I feel like I'm always on the look. Are my eyes getting worse? Can I tell? Like it, it made me on high alert to know that this report says I have genetic variants that will make me blind at some point. I hope not. I hope I'll never become blind. Your spiritual ancestry matters much more than your physical ancestry. Again, the connection here for me is I, I, I have a few genetic variants that might hurt my physical health someday. I really don't care. I'm going to get new eyes eventually. God's going to give me great eyes someday. But your spiritual ancestry matters a lot more than that. If you're connected with the tribe of Levi, you're, you're under the law. You are burdened by trying to obey God's commands to secure your righteousness before him. But if you are under the tribe or under the, the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is Jesus' priesthood, then you are under the, the ancestry of grace through Christ. And that matters everything. That's, that's the whole thing. And in fact, this, this change here from, Mel, uh, from Levi to Melchizedek is a massive change of epic proportions. For the Jewish person, this would have been mind-blowing because they would have never have known anything different. You and I, we understand this because we're Gentiles and we're Christians. Jesus has always been the high priest for us. But for them, this would have been a paradigm-altering, life-changing kind of situation here. But here's what it means for us. There's two implications for us. Specifically, uh, I want you to understand that what Melchizedek introduces for us is perfection. I mentioned the word twice as we read it through Hebrews chapter 7, but perfection. Through the ministry of Jesus from the tribe, uh, from the Melchizedek and priesthood, we can now be perfect. The old system could never perfect us. But now through Christ, we can have a genuinely perfect relationship with God. What I qualify that as saying is that you are perfectly righteous in his sight, perfectly positionally righteous, even if practically you're still not there yet. You ever wonder why some people on, on, on I don't want to put anybody out. If this is you, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not throwing shade. I just want to point it out. We have this fascination, people that is, with making ourselves look as close to perfection as possible. That's why apps like Facetune do so well. 
You go on, you get the face tune, and you kind of just slightly make yourself look a little better. We want to get as close to perfection as possible, even if it's, it's subtle. And so people use apps like this to fundamentally alter their appearance in some ways that are pretty drastic. You know, they'll take out the rough edges, the, 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 the wrinkles, the, the spots. You know, in this case, she changes her face shape, but girls aren't the only ones. Guys also do the same thing, just a little differently. Some people will go above and beyond the call of duty and really do some damage to what their face should look like, and they erase all lines whatsoever. They have no neck, no chin. Uh, someone made fun of this because, and this isn't, this isn't real, but <laughs> some people just go too far. They go too far. Our efforts at our own perfection are laughable. And here's the thing. Here, here's my point. We yearn, and this is silly, but we yearn for perfection. We all want, we all desire, grasp to be perfect. And I'm saying that's not necessarily a bad intuition. It's bad when it causes us to seek it outside of anything besides Jesus Christ himself. Even your sense of having physical perfection, that physical yearning comes from an internal desire that is aware I'm not what I'm supposed to be. My body breaks down. My eyes are degenerating. My hair is falling out. Um, you age and your body decays and you recognize that's not the way it's supposed to be. So you try to protect yourself, even if you're young. For some of you guys, you know what I'm talking about. But that yearning for perfection can only be found through Jesus Christ, through Jesus' priesthood in the Melchizedekian priesthood that Jesus provides. The first thing is he perfection. The second thing is permanence. Permanence. Melchizedekian priesthood offers a permanent forever priesthood that the Levitical priesthood could never offer. Jesus holds down this office forever. Have you ever heard the term planned obsolescence? Planned obsolescence. It's a term that marketers, well, they don't, they don't market this to you, but it's a term that's used in manufacturing when someone makes something that by design is meant to eventually break down so you buy a new that thing, whatever that is. So for instance, you could think about uh, the planned obsolescence of an iPhone. Uh, Apple was put in the spotlight not too long ago because they were slowing down older phones. And they said, well, we're doing that to protect your battery. And everyone called baloney. You just wanted to buy new phones. They were, they were throttling your phone. Another thing that you might think of as is, is printers. Printers have, uh, like, they're, they're cheap. You can get a printer for like five bucks. But when you buy the ink cartridge, it's like $1,000 for black ink, and it's used within four sheets of paper. Man, I'm getting really spitty here. Okay. <laughs> they have this, and, and even then, here's what's most frustrating about printers. HP, I'm looking at you. you they, they, they let you print and they say, hey, low ink, low ink. And I'm like, I know, I know, but I still see some in there. I'm going to use the rest of that ink. And then I still see ink in the cartridge, but it won't let you print. It's like there's nothing in there. I'm like, no, I see it in there. I see it, HP, let me print it. And it won't let you do it. Planned obsolescence. I came across this again recently. I, okay, so a couple years ago, I bought what I thought was going to be the best vacuum ever. Seriously, I, I, I shared illustrations with you before about how I like clean lines on the carpet. I like, I like vacuuming. I like a clean house. So I researched and I bought, at the time, it was a $220 vacuum. And I thought, man, this is the most expensive thing I'm ever going to buy. This is going to last me for forever. I think we're now on our fourth one. And I'm like, why do I keep buying this? Why do I keep doing this? Because the reviews on Amazon tell me that they're amazing. So I'm like, it's got to be me. I must have held the vacuum wrong. Maybe I plugged it in the wrong socket and it worked the right way. Okay. We desire permanence, 
Planned obsolescence is often the foe that we come across. And, and the reality is, the Levitical priesthood had a planned obsolescence kind of uh, feel to it. The Bible told us to, to understand that there was going to be a future priesthood, a future priest who would be both perfect and permanent. This priesthood is forever. Jesus holds this priesthood for on and on and on it goes. So when you come and talk to a Roman Catholic, they say, well, I got to confess my sins to a priest. And they'll say, Christian, do you have a priest? And normally you probably would answer, well, what would you answer? Christian, do you have a priest? Do you confess your sins to a priest? Say, so, yeah, my great high priest. I confess my sins to him. We don't go to an external person. We go to Jesus himself. He fulfills the prophecies, prophecy of Psalm 110. He is our perfect and permanent high priest. But it gets better. Let's continue on, verses 23 through 28. This one isn't nearly as long. So please open your Bible. Follow along with me there. Verses 23 through 28. The former priests were many in number. They had to be because they, they were prevented from serving forever because they would die. Verse 24. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, uh, actually, yeah, he has no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests and their frailty and their brokenness and their sin. But the word of the oath, Psalm 110, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Part of the goal behind this text here is to help you understand the role of Jesus' priesthood and for you to respond to it, not with an, oh, that's interesting, but an, oh, that's amazing. You are king. You're the Lord. You're amazing. I love you, Jesus. I should marvel at that. Point number two, you should marvel at the superiority of Jesus' priesthood. Part of this is a difficult text because it requires us to have a lot of background knowledge. But the greater part of this is, is supposed to cause us to say, wow, Jesus is amazing. In the same way that uh, Malki Tzedek was a king priest, Jesus is also a king priest who fulfills the law in a perfect fashion. I, I heard a study that most people, if you ask them, and you answer honestly, most people, including yourselves, I'll get to you in a second, think that you're above average at almost everything. <laughs> at almost everything. There's a name for this. It's called illusory superiority. You think you're better than average, which statistically is impossible because most of us are average, right? But we don't think that. We think we are superior in a lot of ways. And they call this the inflation of our positive qualities. We look at ourselves and we say, look how great I am. And we give ourselves the benefit of a doubt. We look at others and, and, and understand that they're terrible. And in fact, one thing I heard recently, <laughs> I heard uh, recently that if you're in a car, and if, for, for those of you guys who do drive, the one who's driving way too fast is reckless. Like, oh, what's that guy doing? What's that girl? She's driving way too fast. What a dummy. The one who's driving too slow is a moron, right? Man, why can't you drive fast? Why are you going 20 and a 45? You get mad because they're driving too slow. You are the only one driving the right speed. And I'm like, oh, I might be a little guilty of that. Well, the whole thing, I, we think of ourselves far more highly than we ought to think. In fact, some studies say this. 
Um, uh, for instance, okay, researchers asked a million high school students how well they got along with their peers. None of the students rated themselves below average. Surprised? As a matter of fact, 60% of students believed that they were in the top 10%. 25% rated themselves in the top 1%. 25%. Okay, obviously, this is ludicrous. We just have this terrible understanding of ourselves, and it's self-inflated. We are egotistical people. In fact, the, the biblical word for that is pride. We are arrogant people. We're proud. One researcher said, one of the clearest conclusions of social science research is that we are proud. We think better of ourselves than we really are. We see our faults in faint black and white rather than in vivid color, and we assume the worst in others while assuming the best in ourselves. I say all this, I use this as an illustration to point you to one clear feature of Hebrews chapter 7. When the author and preacher of Hebrews is trying to give you confidence and assurance uh, for your walk in Christ, notice that he's not pointing at you and saying, well, aren't you amazing? Stay at it. You can do it. You're strong. You're powerful. Say, I am capable. Tell them that you are worthy. He doesn't do that. He points your attention squarely at Jesus Christ. Now, I know this is a bit echoing the last sermon that I preached for you guys in, in Hebrews chapter 6, but the point remains, as we look at edifying our salvation or edifying our souls, God does that by not having you look at you, but by having you look at Jesus. When I say, uh, when I want you to marvel at the superiority of Jesus' priesthood, this really means for you and I that we worship him in spirit and in truth with all the gumption that we can muster, all the energy, all the focus. Marvel at the superiority of Jesus' priesthood. Let me offer you three, three qualities of Jesus' priesthood that demonstrate his superiority. First, Jesus never dies. That's an important factor because we, we talk about it over and over again. In fact, sometimes I'll, I'll, ask, I'll ask people, hey, what's the gospel? And you know what part of the gospel always, not always, sometimes, most of the time gets missed? We always get that Jesus lived for us. I do get that Jesus died for us. You know what part is often missing? The resurrection. Sometimes when people talk to me about the gospel, I'll say, man, it's a, it's a big shame Jesus died. What a tragedy. And they're like, oh, oh, yeah, I forgot. He raised again. Okay, that's kind of a big deal. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the linchpin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, we should be pitied because we're living a lie. We're living a life that makes no sense apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His resurrection, his not dyingness, is what makes his permanency so attractive. He can stay alive and, and do things for us because he is alive right now in a physical body in heaven. Jesus is alive right now, physically, in a place. You ever think about that? I mean, Jesus could, in theory, walk through those doors right there and say, what's up, true Norm? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. No one opened it. <laughs> like, the fact that Jesus doesn't die, contrasted to the fact that we see death all around us, is powerful. And that's meant to bolster our faith in the fact that Jesus is a strong and capable Savior who does not die. Some of you guys know that my brother's in the hospital right now, and there are times when I thought, I mean, I, honestly, it was a roller coaster. I thought he was on his last legs. I, we rushed to get over there to meet with him. I wanted to pray with him and just tell him I loved him, which I did. Got to do that before he was sedated and put under. But as I began to think about the fact that he might be going, I started to ask myself, like, man, what am I, what do I say? What can I, what can I say right now that'll be helpful to him? And of course, I wanted to talk about Jesus and his confidence in his salvation. And then I thought, man, this, if we do say goodbye, it's not really goodbye. I'll see you later. You've got a short however many years God gives me, and I'll see you there. I'm looking forward to that. 
And death for the Christian is not an obstacle because Jesus killed death. Death is a temporary interruption for us, but Jesus dying on our behalf means that for us, the sting of death has been removed. Yeah, we might still have to go through it unless Jesus comes back. But we look forward to the fact that there is a resurrection and a reunion that will outlast this short life. Jesus is superior because he never dies. We should worship him for that. Jesus is superior in his, his Melchizedekan priesthood because he perfectly qualifies. Um, you, you might remember in verse 26, it says, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest who's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. We needed a perfect mediator and Jesus qualifies in every way possible. When you think about the word perfection, sometimes we use the word perfect, like, man, those tacos were perfecto. And because, you know, I mean, we, we, I mean the, the Chick-fil-A sandwich was perfect. Crispy where it should be crispy and then juicy where it should be juicy. The waffle fries were perfectly salted. We use perfect in a lot of ways like the way that we use love. But when we talk about perfection as it relates to Jesus in the scripture, we're talking about morally perfect in every way possible. Any way you could scrutinize Jesus, he's perfect. Jesus was able to say, which of you accuses me? I'm not going to say that to you because I'm sure there's ways I sinned against you. And you're like, well, Pastor Rod, you did this, this, and that. Jesus said that. Okay, tell, me, tell me how I've sinned against you. And no one was able to offer a legitimate charge against him. Jesus perfectly qualifies. One of my favorite songs that I love when we sing it is, Oh My Soul Arise. That's the bass line at the beginning. Do, 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 do. Oh, my soul arise, behold the risen Christ, your great high priest, your spotless sacrifice. I'm pretty sure that song comes from the book of Hebrews. It's meant to convey the fact that we have a spotless, perfect mediator who stands before God on our behalf to mediate for us. He perfectly qualifies. Jesus also, instead of offering bulls and goats and lambs, Jesus offers himself. Jesus never dies. Jesus perfectly qualifies. Jesus offered himself as sacrifice. A little bit of rhyming in there. You're welcome. But Jesus doesn't have to offer sacrifices for himself because Jesus doesn't sin. So the only sacrifice he had to offer was the one wherein he sacrifices himself for the good of humanity. I saw a terrible video this week. And please, if you don't, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't, don't look it up. I'm even kind of hesitant about telling about what happened. But this video, this guy comes into this museum and starts stabbing the ladies behind the desk. Like seriously, with a knife, just stabbing them. The, the ladies are behind this front desk entrance area. And then there's another guy on the other side of the desk. And he's got a computer or some kind of laptop device. And as this guy is stabbing them, I'm looking at this guy saying, okay, what's he going to do? Is this guy going to do something? Because I see you and I see him. He, he, he clocks that he's there and he clocks what he's doing. And the guy, I'm like, okay, is he going to jump over the desk and he's going to, you know, punch these guys in the face? The guy, and I don't, he picks up his computer, throws it at the guy. And then he kind of does this thing, you know? Ha! Ah. <laughs> and in my heart, I'm like, dude, man up. Get rid of that thing. Kick the dude in the face. Take a knife to the side. Whatever you got to do, just do it. And then I thought, well, hold on a second. Would I do that? Would I jump behind a desk? I mean, I, I would hope I would. But I can imagine in that moment, I'm thinking about my wife, my five kids. I don't know how many kids I got now, several kids. <laughs> Which, by the way, we found out what our baby's gender is. But 
because the baby hasn't chosen yet, I can't tell you. We have to wait till the baby comes out. Just kidding. So I'm thinking about my wife and my kids. If you listen to the end, if you're good, maybe I'll tell you at the end of the sermon. The guy throws his laptop. Would I do it? I don't know. I, I, I would hope I would, but I don't know. I would have to think about it. <laughs> in the moment of decision, I, I would hope that I would do the right thing and I would willingly sacrifice myself if necessary. Hopefully I could stab the guy first and disarm him. But I would think about a lot of things. My family, my kids, my pastoral leadership. Jesus did ask God, please give me a way out. If there's any other way, I want a way out. But then, of course, he highlights and emphasizes his prayer with, not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus willingly sacrifices himself to save humanity. He rescues us at great cost to himself. Now, I was afraid about getting stabbed. And I'm sure the guy that threw the laptop at the, the other guy did, I'm sure you, you don't want to get stabbed. That sounds pretty awful. Jesus was more than stabbed. He was flogged and then crucified, which I won't belabor the point. You guys remember some of the things that we talked about then. Let me, let me make this one point. I said the whole point, point number two, marvel at Jesus. There are going to be times, and maybe tonight was one of those, you don't feel like worshiping Jesus. You don't feel like singing. I don't like that song. I don't like that whatever. I'm not feel, I had a long day. You don't feel like it. When you are approaching this time and you feel like you don't feel like it, I want you to think about Jesus not feeling like it and still doing it. Doing it for you. So yeah, you may not feel like it. Do it anyway. Do it until you feel like it. I want to spend time <clears throat> in this third point on just one verse. It'll go fast, and my third point I trust will go fast as well. Here's what it says. We, we skipped over it pretty quickly, but I want you to, to, to hear this. Verse 25, consequently, because he lives forever, because he is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, not Leviticus, not Levitical, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, to the furthest extent, to the greatest degree. He's able to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives. He never dies. He always lives to make intercession for them. If you're going to stake your life on anything, this is the thing to stake your life upon. There's a ride that I want to get on. I, I want to do it. I don't know if I have the guts, but the ride is called the slingshot ride. Oh, yeah, look at that. That was good. Wasn't that good? It was so good, we're going to skip it. <laughs> slingshot ride. One of my <clears throat> guilty pleasures is that I'll look up people that faint on those rides funniest thing in the world. They're terrified so bad. And most of the time, it's a guy. Girls would do pretty good. Anyway, like you're putting your life <laughs> in the hands of these two rubber bands, and you just hope they work. <laughs> get in the run and just get shot out, and hopefully you don't die. There was one in Utah. Speaking of, you should sign up for STM Utah. That's, that's one of my favorite things. There's one in Utah at one of the theme parks we, we, we strolled by. And I, I thought about getting on it, but I didn't because I'm like, oh, I don't want to die on the, on the youth ministry trip. I mean, STM Utah, Pastor Rob died. We'll never be able to do it again. So I didn't do it that time, but I want to. But again, when it comes down to putting your life on things, a lot of us are willing to risk our lives for a lot less, a cheap thrill. But what I'm asking you to risk your life upon, to stake your eternity on is this. Bet on Jesus' all-encompassing salvation. Bet on that. Depend on that, count on that, rely on that, trust in that, wholeheartedly commit to that. 
If you want to know how to stay enduring in the faith or to how, how to have assurance, you need to put everything on Jesus, forever all-encompassing salvation. Three quick things and then we'll be done with here. I want you to know this. You should bet on this. Jesus will finish what he started. If you're in Christ, there's never a day in your life when you'll not be in Christ. Jesus began the good work. He will finish the good work. You can count on that, depend on that. When you say, Pastor Rod, I'm weak, I'm a sinner, I'm, I'm a loser, I would say almost, amen, join the club, buddy. Our, our hope and our focus is not on us being good enough to warrant salvation. Jesus was good enough. And what he finished, young person, he will, let's try that again. What he started, young person, he will finish. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 28, he says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one, not even you. If you belong to Christ, he will finish what he started. Not only that, you could bet on this. Jesus is your righteousness before God, related but different. Those who draw near to him are those that God will receive, those who draw near to God through Jesus. You're going to God, not on your own merits, but on the merits of Christ. In fact, the whole concept of drawing near to God is laden throughout the book of Hebrews. Let me give you a quick sampling. Drawing near to God. You might remember this from chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Think about this. Hebrew Israelite, how did they draw near to God? They had to go through a priest, right? And even then, they couldn't go to the holiest of places. They had to let the, whole, the high priest do that. Jesus says, hey, come on through. You're with me. Come on through. Draw near to God. Hebrews 7, 19. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That better hope is Jesus. Your righteousness makes, it, makes God accessible to you in ways that were profoundly off limits for every other person before Jesus. Chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, the law can never, by the sacri same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law couldn't do that. But who does do that? Jesus does that. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Faith in what? Or rather, faith in who? Jesus. Jesus allows us to draw near to God. Last one in, he in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In other words, faith through Christ, allows you to draw near to God in ways that were profoundly off limits for everyone else in human history prior to Jesus Christ. Jesus is your 100% full righteousness before God. You need to count on that, bet on that, believe on that. And if you haven't drawn near this week, draw near. If you're having a dry season, draw near. If you're having a great season, draw nearer. If you find yourself somewhere in between, guess what I'm going to say? Draw near. Bet on this. Jesus is right now interceding for you in heaven. Think about that. The man, Christ Jesus, who is alive right now, is interceding for you with the Father. Sometimes we call that word interceding prayer. He's petitioning God, the Father, on your behalf. He's beseeching. He's asking. He's talking to the Father about you. He's asking him to do good things for you. He's asking him to forgive you. I don't know exactly the nature of that intercession, but because Jesus is the God-man, he could do that for every Christian alive right now. 
That's happening, and that's possible because there's two ways that this takes place. First of all, the Spirit of God intercedes as well. Jesus is interceding, and also the Spirit is interceding. He, uh, Romans 8, 27. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Romans 8, 34. Jesus intercedes for us because he's the one who died and justified us. You can feel great confidence when you recognize Jesus is interceding for you right now. If you belong to him, right now, Jesus is in your corner. You're a sinner. You could say terrible things. You can do terrible things. But if you're going to Christ, Jesus will intercede for you to the Father. And he'll do that for you right now. In fact, one of the things I'm confident Jesus is praying is, Father, keep them in the faith. Remember when Jesus prays for Peter? He says, Peter, you're going to deny me. But don't worry, I prayed for you. And when you have turned, go and strengthen your brothers. A lot of us need to hear that because you're going to let Christ down this week. You're going you're to do something, say something that dishonors Jesus. You're going to deny him in front of others. And you're going to be tempted to say, I forget this. I'm not a Christian anymore. I'm just giving this up. No, draw near. Confess, repent, draw near. Let Christ heal that. Change that. Let him save you. Sanctify you. These are things you can bet on. A song that was also inspired by the book of Hebrews is a song that we're going to close with tonight. Before we do that, I want to walk you through this song. Take a guess. What song do you think this is? It's Snoop Dogg's Trap. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's one of my favorite songs. Before the throne of God above. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Who do you think that strong and perfect plea is? It's our great high priest, right? My strong and perfect plea before God is my great high priest who is called love. God is love. Whoever lives, who never died, he ever lives and pleads for me. There's that intercession. My name is graven on his hands, which is name, my, my name is written like a tattoo. My name is tattooed on God's hand. And if you're wondering where that comes from, it's from, the, uh, it's from Isaiah 49, I think. It's a reference to God's constant care and affection for his people. Our, name, our names are on his hands and our names are written on his heart. So it's not just a sentimental love, it's a loyalty to us. I know that while in heaven he stands, Jesus, that is, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No one can tell me to go away from God because Jesus has made me acceptable. When Satan tempts me to despair about my sin, and reminds me that I'm guilty, upward I look. I look up to the heavens and I see him there, Jesus, who made an end, an end, an end, who destroyed all my sin when he died on the cross for that sin. And because my sinless Savior died, my soul now, my sinful soul, right now, it's just sinful, my soul is still counted. It is understood by God as free from the bondage of sin and death. It has been justified for God the just the just God of heaven and of earth is satisfied to look on Jesus as my atoning sacrifice and therefore pardon me. Now look at him there, the risen lamb who's perfect and he's spotless and he is my righteousness. The great unchanging, unchangeable I am, the king of glory and the king of grace. One with himself, I cannot die, which is to say God can't deny himself. God has accepted the, the, the price that Jesus paid and God's not going to deny that. He's not going to wake up one morning and be like, you know what? I lost an hour of sleep. I'm not feeling good anymore. I'm just going to take away the salvation thing. No. One with himself, I cannot die because now I am united with him 
through Christ's sacrifice. My soul has been purchased by his blood. My life is now hidden with Christ on high, with Christ, my Savior, and my God. That is an amazing psalm, and all the, all the more deep when you realize how much theology it's pulling from the book of Hebrews. So I'm going to invite you to stand up with me now as we not only sing this song together in closing, but also, as I told you in point number two, let's marvel at what we've heard. Let's marvel at who Jesus is. Why? Because Jesus is better. And when we're identified with him, his priesthood, his eternal nature, his eternal sacrifice for us, his internal high priestly role, and there's no reason for us not to. Let me pray for us as we close in this song. Thank you.